This meeting is being live streamed. This is Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlyle, joined as always by Jake Taylor. Our special guest today is David Trainer from New Constructs. How are you, David? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Well, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. So we're going to talk a little bit about machine learning, AI, uh, forensic accounting analysis, where should we start? Let's let's start with what's what is New Constructs. New Constructs is a is a forensic accounting firm that leverages machine learning to drive a better, I think, AI for doing research. Uh, you know, look, it came out of the idea that that there's so much propaganda. Uh, I saw it firsthand when I was at Credit Suisse during the tech bubble. So much propaganda when it comes to research coming out of Wall Street, coming out of CNBC, coming out of everywhere, that uh, you know, I felt like someone needed to sort of lean into producing something reliable and worthwhile. And I, you know, I feel like in some ways people believe that machine learning and AI is like a magic wand. You can just wave over the internet and get all you need out of it and trust it. And I think we got to maybe take a step back and recognize what it takes to make good research to begin with and, and whether or not AI can do that. So what goes wrong there then? Well, it's the 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 real issue is the, is the propaganda, the underlying source source data. So I think one of the first things for me that was a kind of an epiphany was being on Wall Street and realizing, oh wait a second, all these research analysts that I've been working with all these years, they're not all made the same. The ones that are cozy with the bankers, they maybe have a different agenda, mm-hmm. and there was sort of no way to misunderstand that. When Frank Quattrone joined Credit Suisse and they got into the tech investment banking, because before he joined, Credit Suisse really didn't have a tech investment banking platform. And then when he joined, it was really, really clear, like there was just a different focus. And, you know, I think the first thing that's important for most investors to realize is that you, you just can't trust most research. If it's coming from Wall Street, it's conflicted and it's conflicted in a big way. The research analysts don't make money for the firm. The bankers do. So who do you think decides who gets hired and fired? By the way, I don't know how to make that funny thumbs up thing stop. You guys see that? Yeah, you did this. <laughs> how do, does he, anyone know how to turn that off? I've been trying to turn that off for like a month. <laughs> Just let it go. It looks like it's emphasizing everything you say. Yeah. Great. It's great. I think it does all kinds of stuff. Anyway, yeah. The, the machine overlords agreed with you. That's right. This is what I get for talking bad about machine learning. Watch this is going to do another one. It's going to do the hands. Look at that. Boom. Uh-uh. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, I think we're, we're, we struggle a lot so much right now in society in general. It's like, are we discerning about what we what we pay attention to and don't pay attention to or what we trust and what we don't trust? And we lack that in so many ways. And I think we see that in politics and we see that in in Twitter and, and, and social media in general where people are getting so upset and worked up and and, and that are so sort of isolated or, or, or polar in the way they address issues, right? You're either like hardcore right or hardcore left. There's no in between. There's no, there's no civil discourse around things because people are, I think, feel like just so polarized. And it's because they're not discerning enough about what they're paying attention to. And you have to realize that most of what dominates the news wires, the TV, the research is people who can pay to be at the top of the list. And they can pay to be at the top of the list because they're making a lot of money doing what they're doing. And, and they're more about making that money than they are about informing you. They're at the top of the list because they want you to do what they what makes them money. Wall Street's a great example. You know, I mean, think about I've been I've been replaying um a, a video of, of quiver the quiver quantitative people put together for us on on WeWork. We were the first to kind of blow that up. But remember all of the propaganda about this great new idea, community adjusted EBITDA, <laughs> right? And and what's WeWork worth now? Almost zero, right? Even the SPAC that they used to to sneak into a public the public markets is about to go to zero. All that propaganda. They tried to sell that to the market. $45 billion valuation. And now it's a zero. Does Zoom give me an icon for that? No, it doesn't look like it. Did, did you um 
Did you take a look at WeWork through new constructs? We did. We did. We we were um, one of the first to to raise a red flag. Uh, got we we wrote an article. It was featured in Forbes. It was called "This is the most ridiculous IPO of 2019." <laughs> that was there's a lot of competition. There was, there really was, and 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 uh, and that made some headlines. Where even like a you know that's and that headline got featured in a couple of documentaries. Some people have sent me some screen shares of of um of that being featured. Uh, what was the? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, what was the accounting that was kind of throwing up the red flags there? Well, it was it was it was the community adjusted EBITDA and how <laughs> how could we have known? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound weird. Uh, and it's a great example of like of Wall Street crafting a narrative to make you want to buy something that's worthless. And and you know the other thing that was an issue is in the footnotes there were a lot of related party transactions mm. that made it particularly bad because we had a lot of, like you said Tobias there was a lot of bad IPOs in that period but the related party transactions and the conflicts of interest that were disclosed uh, were. Pretty bad, you know. Adam Newman paying his family exorbitant fees to cater parties and things like that, and think him him himself being paid a whole bunch of money for the WeWork. Yeah, he bought buildings and then was like leasing them back or something as part of that. Yeah, it was all it was all pretty ugly for a business that was highly unprofitable and then valued so richly. Uh, and the voting structure that was the same with a lot of other IPOs. Voting structures were very anti-friendly to public investors. You're basically going to give them all this money and have no voting power. Sounds like a great deal. That's very common, increasingly common these days. seems like every company's got the super voting shares. Yes. Yes. So it just kind of gets to like the, the, the point that, you know, as a great example of just how, how bad the propaganda can be, how far they'll go to mislead people in order to get them to try to buy something that they want to sell. And it doesn't just happen with the WeWork, it happens all the time. That's the majority of information people are getting, whether it's about stocks or politics. What do you think about the sell side analysts? Why, why are they, I mean, I, I, obviously they're trying to get business for the bank, which is why they're often more optimistic than they probably should be. But they also seem to be, I thought that the, oh, I thought the whole point of that, the, the change that they made post Catron and all those other guys from that period was they had to be sort of independent. Is that, that that seems to have sort of just slowly disappeared? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that one, Tobias. Because the, the the global research settlement, driven by Elliot Spitzer, uh, not such a famous name anymore. Infamous. That was the, the yeah, right. Um, you know, that was the biggest settlement against Wall Street in the history of the world. It was 1.2 billion dollars, and I think that Wall Street probably made about that much money in a week during the tech bubble. <laughs> So, you know, again, and there's been a lot of articles written about sort of the, 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 how small the fines are and, and how that effectively is. Um, it's an incentive to go break the rules because even if you do get caught, it's going to be less than what you made. But to your point, Tobias, on, on the analysts, that was the fine is that there was huge conflicts and they were getting paid directly by the IPO. So I don't think they're getting paid directly on the proceeds of the IPO. But they are for sure getting paid for the proceeds of the IPO because that's the only revenue, anyway, to the firm. Uh, so I think they just can't be tied. Their bonus can't be tied to how well a particular IPO does. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think part of the way they do it too is that you know how many how many silverback analysts do you see out there? How many so how many analysts from Wall Street aren't young and sort of vibrant personalities? They bring these folks in so young, pay them so much money. They haven't. They don't even understand what they're doing half the time. I don't think. I don't think they really get that it's a conflict because it's not like they're advertising it at the firm. And I know when I was at Credit Suisse, there were just a couple of older older gentlemen that were were analysts, but everyone else was was really young. So I think that's increasingly the trend. Intellectual cannon fodder. Yeah, I mean, and, I, and honestly, I think they're just throwing so much money at them and, and they've never really understood how the industry works and, and they don't get it right away. It's like Druckenmiller hiring those two young gunslingers at the top of the dot-com boom because he knew he was he was too jaded, too cynical to to do it himself. He needed some guys who'd never been blown up, fearless. Yeah. And then they blew him up. Yeah. 
And he knew it was going to happen. And he knew it. And he couldn't stop himself. Let, let me give a shout out to uh, to to the folks who are watching. Clearwater, Florida, first in the house. KOTOR, Montenegro, Ocean City, New Jersey, Winter Park, Florida. What's up? Valparaiso, London, Castleford, Hamburg, Tienan, Belgium, Highland Park, Illinois, Albuquerque, Brandon, Mississippi, Mendocino. What's up? Vancouver, Old Ocean, Texas. Milton Keynes, Sacramento, Toronto, Highland Park. I think we got them all. Albuquerque, Nashville. Someone in Nashville. Nashville. Nice. Clungyville, Netherlands. Reykjavik. McMurdo Station, Antarctica. That's a good one. Is that real? Santa Monica. <laughs> Koh Samui. Good for you. Thailand. Jeez. That's a good spread. I don't know why you're dialing in here if you're on Koh Samui. Maybe <laughs> it's night time. So, David, uh, you guys take the financial statements, you pass them, you're looking for, you're looking to reconstruct them so they're sort of comparable on a like-for-like basis, and then you store that in a database that's that's searchable. Is that, is that new constructs? Is there more to it? Yeah, yeah. It's like you take all these filings and all this crazy amount of data, and you know you organize it in a way that helps you understand profits better than what's given to you in the filing, because you can't really trust that. For a variety of reasons and uh it's been a problem that's been around for you know since the beginning of the stock market and the benefit of what of what the big benefit today in context of, of today's conversation is that by doing this reorganization of the data we've we've got real training data to drive machine learning and ai so that we can you know there are a lot of filings we can parse 100 automatically and so the process of, of pulling this data out, and let me take a step back, um, the, the, because the reason that it, the automation is important is because if you're going to do this work manually, you're going to read a 250-page annual report and pull out all the data, not just the income statement or the balance sheet of the cash flow statement, but everything in the footnotes, right? And that's the majority of the filing. The financial statements are three or four pages. Footnotes, that's the other 247, right? And... The nature of footnotes is that you never know if the footnote's going to be on page 201 or 184. You, you don't know. You have to look at all of them. And we have been, been painstakingly parsing out the data from these filings for 20 years, right? So that now we've done it enough times and organized the data in a way that we can drive our machine learning with a real intelligence, around how to categorize and understand the data because we've got hundreds of thousands of examples of how to do that. And that's the big distinction I, I want us to, to come away with today for, for the audience in particular is that if you've, no matter how fancy or powerful your AI or machine learning engine, if the fuel driving it isn't super high quality, then it's it's a waste. It's just like, just like we're hearing with ChatGPT producing reports based on uh, an accurate data and producing an accurate results as as a byproduct. Uh, you know, if if you if you don't have the good information to drive the formula, the calculation, you know, from the original simple models um, to the most sophisticated models, the source data, the underlying driver of of the data for the model is what matters most. And if that's not right, then you can't trust the output, no matter how big the engine. Did you see that New York? I think it's New York Community Bank, NYCB, that they had that stubbed their toe pretty hard. I think they were down like 34% in a day and then might be down 50% from the peak. Did you have a look at that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know that filing that they came out and they had the two? It had two loans in it that had done most of the damage. And to read those loans, it almost read like there was nothing wrong. I read them and I couldn't figure out what was They've clearly very cleverly drafted to hide what's actually happened. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, uh, you know that's but what, what we've been battling. I've been I've been doing this work for 25 years, and and that was kind of part of the reason I had such an epiphany when I was on Wall Street and putting together, hey, look at these this tech team and what they're talking about. And I'm looking at these filings, and I'm seeing how the complexity is not just you know it's not a lot. It's just a lot of complexity. It's changing every quarter. You'd you'd think that the the quarterly report from for one company from one quarter to the next would be exactly the same. Why would the auditors want to introduce change? And why wouldn't the annual report look just like the quarterly reports? They don't. They change it all the time. And you could look at IBM over its history. 
you know, I know at one point they had an income statement with maybe like maybe 10 items on it. And probably now there's 20. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, to, to bias the, you know, they're constantly, the lawyers are constantly going through and trying to redraft these things in a way that can walk the line between disclosing what they need to disclose while not raising any red flags. Because we know with the bank you're talking about, the issues have been there for months. It just now got surfaced. Same with true with Enron, right? It took Jim Chanos blowing them up on a call to, to ask questions and, and see things that had been around for a long time. It takes them sometimes a while to manifest it all in the financials, and then it takes a while for people to dig that up. I wonder, is, any, is anybody working on an AI that is actually like on the offensive here? So you're like, how could we write the most, you know, get our maximum obfuscation without tipping into illegal uh, and then selling that product to a to a corporation? They probably are. I think that's what they sell. Black hat. That's what uh, <laughs> they, you know, the, the, the audit and the, and the legal firms are probably trying to figure out a way to automate it. But that is what they sell. I think in general, for sure. Uh, yes, the ability to, um, you know, it's all about trying to maximize shareholder value. If part of that is to obfuscate that things, bad things are going on. Uh, yeah. Did, if you, those, that are, the New York Community Bank, when they had that filing of those two loans that they were writing down and it looked like the first loan was some, they'd taken a big hit from the first loan. The second loan looked like it was part of a category of loans that, I think that they were saying that we're going to have to take a haircut across the category, but we don't have to do it just yet. So we're not doing it just yet was the way I read it. I don't know if you've, if you guys seen this. I'm sorry I didn't bring along the slide that had, because it's not a, it's not a long disclosure. It's only two paragraphs sort of disclosing these two things. I just wondered how you deal with that. If that was something that, because they sort of seem to be talking about other, the was second one as being part of a category. Was it just an 8K that they put out? I can't remember exactly what I was looking. At. I think it, possibly hmm. Friday night dump. Yeah, I yeah. just I was just interested to know how everybody missed it because it was a big a big hit in one go. Yeah, it must have been it must have been an eight K because we're showing the last ten Q was. Uh, well, that was for September thirtieth, so that came probably came out before the end of the year. This would have this would have been last week or the week before. Uh, yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and so, yeah, we're not, we have not yet got a new filing where the, the 10K is uh -huh. supposed to come out in March. So this was probably, they were probably forced to surface that news a little early because it was so important. Well, it certainly blew the stock price up. The market agreed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look, I mean, um, there are probably going to be some more blow up. Yeah. Well, well, that's my, that's, that's my, I have this theory that, well, none of that office has been properly accounted. None of the haircuts that they've taken on the office has been properly accounted for yet. And you're going to see that through all the regional banks. But all the regional banks, are, everybody else knows that too. That's why the regional banks are trading low where they are. But I'm just interested. I was just wondering because the filing was benign. You know, it was a cleverly drafted filing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we show that the, the free cash flow, I mean, it had a neutral rating in our system. Uh, and it has for a while. Uh, the free cash flow is terribly negative. The valuation looks cheap, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, the, the thing about the banks oftentimes is that you don't get in the 10Ks and the 10Qs, the quarterly annual reports, you don't, they don't give you visibility into the underlying the portfolio. Loans, loan portfolio. Correct. You got to go back, you got to look through some other filings if you can get it at all. So. It's also the way they treat it, though, isn't it? They're waiting for particular. It has to hit certain thresholds before they have to recognize it. That's right. That's right. Especially if it's held to maturity um, versus available for sale. Those those kinds of rules mix it up as well. So it's it's some, somewhat of a complicated issue because these are long-term loans. And at some point, commercial real estate will come back. So to market to market at a time when things are abysmal is a, is a bit overreaction. Yeah, I think. But that's, the, that's what held to maturity allows you to do that, right? You don't have to recognize it mark to market in the interim. It's only if it's held for sale that you have to recognize that. That's right. That's exactly. Which, right. which that's sort of, it's sensible. It makes sense to me that you can do that, but unless it gets impaired, in which case you have to recognize it. Correct.
it just makes bank investing so hard. That's why most people avoid banks. Yeah, it's a, it's a completely different set of financials to analyze. I mean, I, I remember back in my Credit Suisse days, and I was doing this work on a bunch of different companies. And when I first started doing this kind of economic earnings as opposed to accounting earnings work, they said you couldn't do it for financials. And most of the databases from the from the legacy data providers, if you want to look at the S&P, they'll, you know, in any kind of financial metric, it'll be X financials, mm -hmm. right? And the truth is, you know, the economics of businesses are are the same universally. At the end of the day, you go when you boil it down to the essence, which is a certain level of cash flow generated from a certain amount of capital. That's what any business does. Anything for profit, you got to hopefully generate either you're generating a profit or a loss based on some capital that people gave you in the business. Maybe you have no capital, but you get the point. That that's that's what we're trying to get at in new constructs. Always is what's the cash flow. What's the capital to start for the business? And whether it's a bank or a trucking company or a restaurant, those concepts apply. And it's about really unwinding all the accounting jargon to get to those core concepts and footnotes to get to those core concepts with integrity so that people have information they can rely upon. Did you see Muddy Waters' um, short note on Fairfax? I, you know, someone in our, um, we have an online community and someone brought that one up last week and, oh man, I didn't look into that that much, but I do remember seeing someone mention something about that. What's the like, ticket? Any idea? FFH.to, I think is the, that's the one that I used to pull it up. I think it might be traded on the pink sheets in the States. It's, yeah. It's FRHFH, I think. Fairfax Financial Holdings. Jake's probably over that a little bit better. Do you want to give a little background on that? Um, on the short report? Yeah, just on Fairfax in that short report. Uh, you know, my reading of it was that, you know, they were, to me, it seemed like they were really just mostly complaining about account, yeah, IFRS accounting standards and how things are marked. And, you know, there's in all of these things where you, you don't have a liquid market for it, there's a lot of, of judgment that can go into how do you determine what you carry something on the balance sheet for. Um, so I don't know. It, it kind of seemed like a lot of much ado about nothing to me personally, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's probably other more things that more substantial to complain about than the accounting. I thought it was a funny target because it's one that's well known by value guys. Value guys like Fairfax. Value guys read financial statements often. Well, I you know, it's it's had a good run. Wrong, it's yeah. had a good run, and if you were kind of more of a casual holder, and Muddy Waters comes along and drops something that might scare you out of it, then they can cash in a little bit on that. You know, maybe that might work for them as a strategy. But I don't, on any kind of longer term basis, I didn't really think it was much of anything. Who got Valiant? Who got Valiant right on the short side? Because it caught a lot of value guys long. I mean, there were some big names in Valiant long. Ackman was long. and uh... We were early on on Valiant too. I remember having um, like debates with people on seeking alpha and maybe some zero about, about Valiant. And I was making the point that their adjusted EBITDA was not a reliable number. I said, you can't pay bills with basically fake EBITDA. Can't pay the bills with that adjusted EBITDA because there's no cash. And uh, I remember people like, saying you just don't get it man yeah you don't get it man you know how to do the math i'm like bro i'm, do I'm doing the math that's, what that's I'm the doing. problem that's the problem <laughs> this is a problem like i'm really doing the math uh and yeah valiant was um that was a really pretty obvious one you know especially with the disincentive with just all stock based compensation canadian roll up leave it roll up right yeah, the roll-up stuff has always been that's a that's an old-time Wall Street trick. It makes it hard because you gotta you gotta deal with new financial statements every single time, with a big acquisition every single time. So there's no continuity. Yes, and they tend to be very well supported by Wall Street because Wall Street's making a bunch of money. Oh, they like the money, yeah, right, all yeah. the way along, and they love selling that. And as long as the acquiring company has a higher PE. Mm -hmm. And they're buying lower PE companies. It's earning earnings accretive, regardless of the economics. Yeah, top line can look really good. And they, yeah. So I, 
one of my good buddies actually, I was at Credit Suisse with, he went over to, to uh, Goldman Sachs. I remember he called me maybe five or 10 years ago and said, David, man, I just realized these roll-up things are just a scam. <laughs> I've done enough of well, them now to realize once you're done and you got no more to roll up, you end up with a business that's got all these acquisitions. They were all over, most of the acquisitions were overpaid. And so they've got all this, this just a, a, a junk pile of stuff that's not really been fit together, but all the way Wall Street's making a ton of money. The acquiring executives are making tons of money. Their comp's just going up because they're a bigger and bigger company. They got bigger peers to to judge comp against. And yeah, it's um, you know, it's a great money-making scheme for those that are in the know, but the investors at the end of the, end of the day usually get left holding a bag. Well, David, there's synergies at the end of the rainbow that are gonna <laughs> make it all work. Yeah, yeah, that's um great point. The synergies are all there. That's like... the, in the eighties there was a there was a uh, that sort of roll up was very popular. They call them entrepreneurs. They had their own index, the entrepreneurs index. And you'll never guess how it finished. In Australia, right? This is Yeah, this is Australia, which is why I'm yeah. skeptical. I'm always skeptical of anything that's a roll up type thing, which is why, you know, probably I miss credit uh, not not credit suisse, constellation for a little while. It just mm. looks like a roll up, but probably probably smarter than your average roll up. I mean Berkshire's a roll up, right? Mm. Smarter than your average roll up. Yeah, I don't know if I would classify that. I mean, that's an, a serial acquirer, but roll-up to me tends to be in the same industry. Industry-specific, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a consolidation theme where there's a, yeah. the synergies in a highly fragmented industry. We're going to bring these companies together and see all these synergies. Fairfax is mostly mostly rebounded from the, yeah. the uh, Muddy Waters report. It's sort of surprising because I thought the Muddy Waters guys did good work, but if they're just leveraging their reputation to try to make a quick buck on a short, that's... That's not, that's not a good look. They got that one wrong, I think. I couldn't even find it on the site. When I went to the site, it wasn't even up. I could only find the, the preceding one. Hmm. Oh, really? So Muddy Waters already took it down? I don't know. I just I just couldn't find it. I didn't look very long. I just wanted to see what the meat was, see, see what they were actually saying. I couldn't couldn't dig it up. Yeah. I, when I did a Google search, I didn't, you know, the when I, on Fairfax, the, the Muddy Waters thing is not in the top on the first page. doesn't have any mention of it, which I think is really strange. Yes, you should be skeptical. It's good to read this short report. Good to have a look. And, you know, the Valiant. Skepticism is good. People probably need a little bit more skepticism with Valiant. But, yeah, I thought it was, it was a little bit, yeah, all smoke, no fire. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's just another example, guys, of like just the, the propaganda machine, the misinformation. You know, you, you just – it's a problem. It's a real problem, I think, that, that – and I look at it not necessarily as something that means spends spells the, the the end of mankind. I just think it's part of a a process, right? Like I think if if you were to believe that there were other intelligent species and other planets that are probably far advanced than ours or whatever, they all probably went through the information age, right? And they would all tell you that the beginning of the information age is the misinformation age. <laughs> There's a deluge of data, information, whatever. And in the beginning, we don't have the equipment, the uh, sophistication, the ability to discern between good signal and bad signal. So, David, if you ask a hypothetical there, then let's say ChatGPTs, all these LLMs are trained on kind of, quote unquote, the Internet. What percentage of the Internet would you call fact versus propaganda? That's a big question, Jake. Yeah. I try to only ask the big questions. I mean, I don't know. 50-50? Is it that good? I mean, I feel like bad information is a lot easier to, to create than good information. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's true. It's, it's easier. You don't have to go and look up facts. It's a lot. It's a real time saver to just... <laughs> All right. Fairfax is up on the website. It's been up there for five days. Mm. Thanks, Brown. Marabuzu for checking that out. Yeah. Um, I got a good question for you here, David. You ever seen any companies trying to underreport their true cash flows? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that happens quite a bit, uh, especially during uh, bad economic times. We call it the kitchen sink effect. Oh, yeah. And the, the idea is when, look, the market is bad, you might as well just tank your earnings because yeah. if you beat, 
in a market with negative sentiment, you're not going to get any credit for it. And the market's just kind of beating everything down. So you understate your, your earnings and cash flows uh, for as long as you can. And then when the market sentiment turns, you take all the cookies you put in the cookie jar and you throw them on the pile when the market sentiment is positive and you get it, you know, you, you get a multiplier effect on positive sentiment on earnings beats on top of the fact that your comps have been reduced as well, right? So mm -hmm. you beat the numbers down and then you can come back higher, faster, and you got better comps. And so it's part of the way they play the game. And you want to time, time your option pool for that, you know, big bath quarter. Great point. Great point. Right. Yeah. Well, let's start it. Uh, we should, uh, can we uh, grant a few more options here during this bad time? We yeah. need to retain all of our management. We don't want people to leave. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when things are looking bad, you know, bonuses are going to be lower. Maybe we need to increase our equity comp. Yeah. So it, it does happen. It does happen. And I don't know that, you know, and I'm not here to say that every single company is intentionally manipulating their earnings. That's part of the challenge. It's not always intentional for all of them, but for some, it's a big deal. For some, it's a big deal to the negative. It's a big deal to the positive. For some, it's accidental. For some, they don't really realize because you know, you, you don't really want a management team that pays that much attention to accounting stuff. Yeah. You want them to focus on the business. That was a huge red flag for, for Enron. I mean, two-thirds of the organization was employed in the accounting division. And all they did was try to figure out ways to manipulate accounting. They call well, it the, I'm sorry, they call it the risk management division. It's a good name. I mean, the accounting was the product at the end of the day. That's exactly that's the risk. That's the best way to put it, Jake. It was the product. Two thirds of the organization worked there, and that's what they exactly was the product. <laughs> David, any thoughts on? Uh, I heard David Einhorn interviewed recently, and he he says that there's a lot of red flags with Tesla's accounting. What is what does New Constructs kind of see on that front? Yeah, it's been there for a while, and you know we've we've pointed out so many flaws in Tesla for like I don't know how many years, and people just don't want to hear it. Uh, so we've sort of, you know, we, we've stopped pounding that drum, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it feels like every other week I'm like, oh, the walls are closing in on this one finally. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's up another 50%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Guess we're, Hey, we're going to send a rocket to Mars. Hey, let's pay attention to that. Don't look over here. We're going to Mars. We've got a robot. Uh, yeah. I got a robot. It can dance. Oh, wait, that's somebody in leotards. Oh, okay. Wait a second. You know, or spandex. I mean, gosh, um, the gullibility, it feels like, is just people want to believe what they want to believe. And that's another thing. It's like not even that people aren't discerning. They they totally fall in the confirmation trap. And they will only focus on things that will confirm what they already believe. Because, by the way, that's easier, too. Speaking of what's harder or easier, producing good information or bad information, it's a whole lot easier just to say, oh, you know what? I believe in Elon Musk, and I'm going to focus on all the things that make me, make me want to continue to believe and, and not look at anything that doesn't confirm my existing belief set. Well, you yeah. just assume you're missing something that everybody else has figured out and you don't want to say anything because you don't want to be the guy pointing out the emperor has no clothes if you know if in fact they're, they're oh really i think dressed. it's the other i think it's the other way around where you get to feel smarter than everybody else like you figured out something that no one else understands but doesn't that mean that you, isn't that why you wouldn't want to stand outside like you don't want to you don't want to stand apart i don't know i think that's why people are so why it's such a battleground stock i think is you have both sides that are are feel very religious about it i will say this i you know i've been i was short the stock at some at some point and i'm highly skeptical of the accounting and i think that it's worth a lot less than everybody thinks it's worth but you know it it was in trouble before it raised a whole lot of capital through that 2020 2021 period and it's probably not that's probably donut has been taken off the table but driving the car, so I recently got one of the cars. <laughs> the cars are beautiful. The it's very thoughtfully laid out. It actually makes me angry at the other car companies when I drive it because I just think there's nothing in here is sort of genius. It's just thoughtful, and anybody could do this. And they're not like, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Makes no sense. But, I think you know, it drives a lot of the sentiment. Device. I think that's a lot of the reason you got the Tesla fanboys because they're like, this is so much better. These other product. guys are idiots. They can't do it. Uh, and I think that, you know, that that was true for a while, but they're catching up. You know, I think that these other cars, I mean, this, at least in terms of market share and sales, are for sure catching up and even eclipsing Tesla. It might be 
might be BYD is the actual. Do you see BYDs in, in the States? No, not yet. They're not in the U.S. yet. Are they? Are, are the trucks in the U.S.? Because I thought mm. I read that they had some chuck trucks that were maybe. I don't know. They're coming. They're coming. I mean, I think that was. I think that was. I think it was part of the deal. Uh, by the way, in terms of accounting with Tesla, absolutely. And the biggest and most important one, I think, is the regulatory credits, considered sort of normal recurring profit. I don't believe that they are. They're going to go away because they're just not going to be able to enjoy those forever. You should not consider that as part of the sort of operating margin of the business because it won't survive. Uh, but yeah, in terms of the the deal with that time they were raising capitals in the, in the U.S. markets and they got the capital from, from China when they needed it. And I, and I believe that BYD has done as well as it has uh, probably in no small part to robbing some technology from Tesla. Jake, do you want to do um, your your uh, veggies? Absolutely. So uh, this is um, this. I think this is kind of a fun one. I'm actually a little excited about this more than normal. All right. So life is essentially a game of turning energy into kids, and every trait is tuned by natural selection to maximize that evolutionary return on each calorie spent. So. I thought it'd be fun to look at different strategies in nature and their ROICs. And in this case, it's return on invested calories, not capital. So nice. we'll start with what I think is the most impressive one. And this is whales eating krill. And blue whales are you know, the largest animals on earth. They weigh you know, on average 200 to 300,000 pounds, which is 136,000 kilograms for our non-US or, or non-imperial. Um, and krill are these little tiny floating sea creatures that are in the same class of animals as crabs and lobsters, crayfish, shrimp. And they make up the ma the vast majority of the blue whale's diet. So you have these huge whales and they're eating up to four tons of krill every day, which is like 3,600 kilograms or 8,000 pounds. Uh, and the whales, how they do this is they work together to execute something called a, a bubble netting. And they dive below a school, school of krill and they release bubbles strategically as a to herd and confuse the krill into these like piles of krill, basically. And then they they come through and basically gulp them all up and then strain the water out and then eat the krill. Uh, and so you might be wondering, like I was, how much krill can a whale eat in a single bite? Uh, and if if a big whale attacks a particularly dense swarm, it can swallow up to 500 kilograms, which is 1,100 pounds of krill in one go, which that equates to eating 457,000 calories in a single giant mouthful. So talk oh, about, protein. yeah, talk about binge eating. And yeah, I do have to assume this is a relatively keto diet. Um, <laughs> so the whales get back almost 200 times the amount of calories burned in this attempt which a 200x return like seems like quite the ROIC to me. But how does it stack up to other strategies in nature? So let's next look at something that's like quite a bit different, which are cheetahs. Cheetahs spend about three hours per day walking around, at, which uses up about 40% of their energy budget. And they chase prey less than two times per day. Uh, and it, it's about 38 seconds spent per sprint to try to chase prey. The rest of the time, they just lay around napping like house cats, basically. Uh, and so they either catch dinner or they give up rather quickly. And they're successful about half the time when they are chasing. And so a cheetah can eat up to 14 kilograms, 31 pounds, at one sitting, which is similar to Toby at Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> a, a group of four cheetahs can finish an impala, which weighs between 90 and 150 pounds in about 15 minutes. Um, so talk about really being able to, to pound it down there. Uh, so now let's transition to humans. Like, how do we do this? How, how well do we fare? Um, looking at first at, at hunting and gathering, the, the Hadza tribe, which is, is a, one of the most studied tribes because they're kind of the most hunter-gatherer of today's day and age. Um, they live in Tanzania and they're, they're near the Serengeti, uh, but they live in tribes of call it 20 to 40 people. And Hadza men will burn 2,500 calories per day while hunting. And it's mostly just walking around and they'll shoot these poisoned arrows at giraffes, for instance, uh, and then spend the next few days tracking the animal as it as it kind of slowly dies. And in case you were wondering, there are about 1.3 million calories in a giraffe. Uh, and so 
for reference, the number of the number of calories in a cow is about four hundred thirty thousand. So, you know, it's it's there are considerably more calories in a giraffe. Um, so next time you're ordering off the menu, uh, but that's still less than a that that entire cow is still way less than the single giant mouthful of krill that the the cat that the uh, whale eats, which is rather remarkable. So anyway, if we assume that the typical three day hunt of twenty hads of men burning twenty five hundred calories per day. We get a total investment of about 150,000 calories. So, uh, and you're getting 1.3 million calories then if you do catch the giraffe. So, that's a 9x return on calories. Nine bagger, pretty good, but that's still an order of magnitude below the blue whale's 200x. So, and by the way, the Hadza men land a big game like a giraffe only about once a month. So they would starve if the Hadza women weren't out there executing an equally sophisticated and complementary strategy, which is using their knowledge of local plant life to bring home reliable food every day. It's it's mostly like digging up tubers with sticks. Um, so the you know the men get to feel like heroes, but the women are probably the ones actually doing the real work. Uh, so then let's transition. About ten thousand years ago, we humans landed on a different strategy than hunting gathering called farming. And today, that's about 42% of our daily energy supply that comes from cereal crops like rice, wheat, and maize. And on a per acre basis, rice produces 14 million calories per acre per year. Uh, that means that an acre produces enough to rice to feed 15 people for a year at, at 2,000 calories per day. And you know that's like bagging 10 giraffes per year, roughly. Uh, but I, you know we should probably ignore kind of the quality of calories between grains and meat. Uh, I don't want to wade into that that uh, online <laughs> battle. Uh, but but for reference, uh, corn produces a similar 14 million calories per acre to rice. Almonds, pistachios, walnuts, tomatoes, wheat, barley, carrots, hay, those all produce about 5 million calories per acre. So, you know, it's about one third. And then spinach and broccoli come in at, at under 1 million uh, calories per acre, which so, so much for veggies segments. Uh, it turns out that there's actually probably no real reason for us to be growing those things other than for people to, <laughs> <laughs> to feel kind of healthy. <laughs> but um, so Toby, you know, just to kind of bring this back to the business world, if you had to guess like what, what ROIC strategy, you know, of, above, you know, ca encapsulated by either whales or cheetah or humans, would you say kind of most closely matches your own investment process? Oh, that's a good question. I was going to, that's a good there's a good comment here from Tyler Farris. He says blue whales would trade at 20 times sales. Like that's that's good. what's the appropriate multiple to put on that that strategy. That's a great comment. I'm jealous. Yeah, I'm a I didn't farmer. Think about it. I'm a farmer. Mm, okay. Well, how so? Uh, lots of small bets rebalanced regularly. Just not uh, not 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 relying on a single big hit. Just trying to get little uh, little wins all the time. Okay, that's good. And I mean, obviously. Farming has allowed us to increase the carrying capacity of the globe in a for humans in a in a pretty dramatic way. Um, in general, I think it, we should probably be thinking about how many calories we're spending chasing around our investment ideas, uh, and and what are the returns on those calories spent. Um, and you know, I've heard Wes Gray call it before, like return on brain damage, and I think that's probably pretty closely related to this. Um, but David, what do you what do you think about? about kind of how you do things and and what that means for kind of the amount of calories that you have to spend compared to the 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 nutrition that you get back. Yeah, I I think the the, the nutritional value of uh, investment information is kind of what we've been talking about all day today, right? I mean, it's uh the the the, the raw material, the source data and I think that's what it's all about because you know, if you think you're eating giraffe meat and you're really just eating grass, right? I mean, you don't, you know, you, you're, you're not going to have the results no matter what, however people package it. And I think that's what Wall Street's good at doing is you know, making you think they've got uh, selling you a bucket of krill and it's maybe just sand, right? Uh, people <laughs> need to be able, any better ways to discern between uh, what Wall Street's selling and what a lot of other sites, uh, you know, these big, big retail sites, there's a lot of misinformation. So at New Constructs, we're just trying to, but basically we're farmers too. We're farming uh, the footnotes to really produce a, a more reliable signal for understanding profitability and valuation. And it's a day by day, it's a grind, it's not sexy. Uh, it's, I think it's a very different strategy than the big game hunting for sure. Mm -hmm. That's more speculating to me. 
David, got a good question here from Tyler Farris, who's our, our producer. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> unofficially. Yeah. But does David have any opinion on Chainos' thesis shorting the data center rates, such as Digital Realty Trust, Digital Bridge, because they're accounting DNA mostly as shoddy? Yeah, you know, um, we agree with uh, with Chainos. In fact, he he reached out to me at one point um and and suggested i take a look you know back when we were doing our zombie stocks he's like hey you know take a look at these guys and we did a deep dive and we came away with a similar conclusion uh and also feel like you know from a from a strategic competitive position that there may be in a bad spot because so much of the demand for the data centers is moving to the cloud uh and then the big users of it you know traditionally you're Facebooks and Amazons and and Microsofts even they've they're know, doing it internally. Yes, yeah, they they're using their own cloud or they're going to buy their own. They don't want to go through a third party for security reasons and so uh it's hard to see how those businesses are really going to grow uh and and they're valued very expensively and the cash flows do not look good. So yeah, we wrote a couple of reports a while ago. What was the accounting issue then? Is it there are they under booking depreciation and amortization to make themselves look more profitable? Like the assets aren't as long-lived as they're saying? I mean, I'm trying to imagine how you could goose it. I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was about, too. I'd have to go back to look at it for sure. But just as an example, in terms of quality of earnings, we're showing for digital realty trust, economic earnings over the trailing 12 months are negative eight dollars and 18 cents uh and the accounting earnings are showing five dollars and 98 cents but you make it up in volume i guess right uh and and there's been a pretty strong disconnect for for quite a long time but we've seen in the last couple years it's getting worse the reported earnings are staying flat and the economic earnings are getting worse i think a lot of times when it comes to reits what people miss is just the size of the balance sheet and so when you go back to that old ratio of how much cash flow you're generating relative to how much capital is going in, mm-hmm. people tend not to look at balance sheets very often. And, and when the balance sheet takes it, when you get a ton, a ton of capital required, this is a bad return on calorie, right? You can take some, taking a lot of calories, you're not getting a lot of energy. Taking a lot of capital, you're not getting a lot of profit or no profit for that matter. Uh, and, and that's what happens a lot with the REITs. And then, you know, add on top of the, the, the these, these, um, REITs focused on data centers and you got to question whether or not the data center business really even makes that much sense. The old, the old bull case for the data centers used to be it's high return real estate. And once you get the, once you get someone in there in a, in a rack or if they've got their equipment in there, then it's just a pain to move, to move all your services. So they're pretty sticky once they go in. But it's it's that you know it's it's real estate that's air conditioned and has lots of power and a few other like it's race it floorboards. Yeah. It, it's but it's, it's pretty good real estate. Yeah, it's very specialized. But very if that that's a real problem if the if all of the big guys are building clouds and going internal, it's just like you're not going to need your own power station anymore. You're just going to get power from the grid. Right. I mean, you just it's it's so much easier. I mean, when we we you know we've been through that as a company ourselves. You know, we had stuff at a data center and. You know, look, I mean, you want to go make a change. You got to like make an appointment two weeks in advance and go through all the security and go in and, yeah, lock the yeah. thing and do all this stuff. It's like, well, or you can just click, send it to the cloud. It's like, well, I don't know. And, you know, and the, the security, you know, the, the, the budget that Amazon has to spend on on security, you know, how, how does a data center business manage that? Right. Because it's Amazon. It's so centralized. Data centers, you kind of need to have in different locations to serve different people. You can't really just bring it all into one. So that's- and it's just Amazon employees going in there. You don't have to deal with a million employees from different different places. That too, which makes the security more challenging. So yeah, good question. Yeah. And too bad, you know, I think uh losing Jim Chanos sort of from the 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 market for investing is sort of it's a it's a telltale sign, man, of just how nutty things are. This guy's one of the OG, you know, short selling, kind of contrarian, skeptical investors out there um we don't need to be running those guys out of business they're healthy for the market mm. is that what is it it's not it's not just he's made too much money he's too old he's sort of doesn't want to do it anymore is it it's a uh, more related to the not even the environment the regulatory environment or the reception 
I didn't read, I didn't see like everything he said. I just think, just th thought it was sad. I mean, I do, I do know I follow him and, and see what he talks about and, and, and enjoy what he says. And I share his perspective on a lot of things. And it is frustrating to be right about the numbers for a long time and stocks just go up. I mean, you got to be pretty zen as a short sort of, I think, just to be like, just to read that Einhorn fooling all the people some of the time or whatever it's called that like what a what a saga but i don't even know i mean that was a he, he was upset with the accounting of a business development company which is they're already a little bit of a funky thing that took him years right and he was grilled by the sec for like you know like he, like he was the bad guy i mean it's the system is is definitely geared toward you know wa wa helping wall street i mean wall street makes a lot of money they pay a lot of taxes they got a lot of money to to put with the uh, lobbyists. I mean, I know I've been down that road too. I've been to DC and I've suggested to the SEC and to the Senate Banking Committee for that matter, you know, that look, we have technology that can do a lot of these things that we spend a lot of time doing manually and don't do very well. And that how was, was your point. how was your IRS audit after you went to all that trouble? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I make so little and I just can't even make the radar, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, no, great question, right? I mean, that's been weaponized in a lot of ways too. That's part of, you know, any, anyway, um, it's a tough market to sell the truth when when you can make so much money selling misinformation. Mm -hmm. well, uh, you remember that wire card, that German fraud where they, the guys, yeah. I was the journalists, I think the FT journalists and the short seller got visited by the, at least by the German authorities. And I think somebody's scarier than that too. Yeah, that another thing. That was that's my my favorite joke to say to my kids is you know whenever we see something that's tough like oh you think you got it bad right and you think about the United States where we at least have some some independence between different regulatory associations I think in Germany it's all just one and they mm -hmm. all get nominated by the investment banks so I mean there's virtually virtually the wolf hot watching the hen house huh yeah I mean I'm like wow okay that's that's tough that's really tough. Um, that's a really sort of upside down regulatory environment. Ours isn't great, but that one's way worse. <laughs> Bill of Rights is helpful in the States, I think, to stop some of the really bad things from happening. True. Um, another good one from Tyler. Does David see a bigger difference between economic earnings and accounting earnings during bull markets or bear markets? Could the gap between the two numbers be a useful tool to figure out where we are in the cycle? We do that research. We once a quarter we publish the economic versus accounting earnings for the S and P, all its sectors. We do the same thing for free cash flow, uh, and we even break it down to return on invested capital, WAC, no pat margins, and capital turns. And uh, yeah, there's definitely for sure you can you can see the spreads widen and and and, and widen and narrow uh, during different times. It's not always a great leading indicator. I feel like the last few sort of Bull markets have just been kind of so, I think the biggest indicators there is the liquidity being pumped in. You can almost see the market go up and down based on how much liquidity is being released. At least over the last year, I felt like there's been a lot of people who pointed out like, oh, by the way, Fed's balance sheet getting bigger. Oh, that's what explains the rally. Uh, that's that's as big a driver of, of, of as anything. I think the macro trends are tough to read. We look at them a lot. And what's way more fun is looking at the individual industry trends and how different they are because when you get to the S&P it all just kind of it gets kind of vanillaized or, or or normalized too aggregated I think so I think so and and I welcome people to come and take a look at the research and see if they can find more out of it because we don't honestly we put the data together and we move on to the next thing we don't get as much time to to look at our own data as we'd like always but at the industry level and at the individual company level that's where I think you see the bigger clues because you can say, oh, look, this industry, you know, it's return on capital is doing great or economic earnings are great, better than accounting earnings. And another one you know, is the opposite. And that's where you want to go in and dig deeper for both long ideas or danger zone or short ideas where you're seeing the disconnects at a micro level. How are the how the mag seven look right now and kind of quality since they're so dominant and market cap and the news and you know we were just having a conversation about the mag seven or maybe large cap in general yeah and, you know i said listen um 
because especially the Walmart run up recently. And Walmart was a focus list stock for us a while ago. We took it off the list um, not too long ago because it just got expensive. And we're like, you know, we think there's better places on the margin to put capital. It's 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 gotten rich, and here it is making a run. And I, I think the, the the takeaway from our meeting this morning was, look, the the, the board eights reserve the rights to get reserve the right to get smarter. They don't just have to pile into meme stocks. I mean. <laughs> Maybe they want to pile into Walmart, right? And I think I'd rather them pile into Walmart or NVIDIA than to GameStop or AMC. And I think they get that too. And and so, yes, Jake, the uh, the Mag 7 are looking really expensive. Some I mean, less than others. I'm wondering if the the Citadel Blue Whale already ate all the Bored Ape Krill. <laughs> I think that that's happening for sure. I think they're, they're I don't know. I don't know. I mean, some of these... Some of the some of the meme stocks are, are are they're still around, but yeah, you're right. A lot of them are down 70, 80, 90 percent. Uh that's probably put a lot of folks out of business. And the ones that are sticking around are the ones more likely to reallocate to something that's probably going to last a little longer. So I, I think that that's 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 going to be another phenomenon. I think as long as there's just this excess liquidity just continues to flow, it's going to go chase risk at risk assets. Cause that feels like the the easiest way to make money and and um, and being discerning and discernment is going to continue to play kind of a subsidiary role because it doesn't help you to be discerning if you're missing out on profits and and people. That's why I think people think. David, you track economic book value against, which is your estimate of sort of what the earning power of the company is normalized against other kind of opportunities, right? So it's it if you. If you have an ec an economic book value for it, and you have an aggregated economic book value, so can you compare that to the prices that people are paying, so you get an idea for the sort of the multiple that the market's putting on the or the premium for economic book value over, or sorry, for market prices over economic book value? Do you track that over time? Oh yes, we we do that for at the uh, macro level too, and and you're right. That's it is sort of one of my favorite metrics. Uh, economic book values, we we call it the no growth value. So we sort of look at the the perpet perpetual value, perpetuity value of the existing cash flows, and the multiple on on that, the price, you know, is is you know gives you a sense of how much growth is baked into the stock. Mm. And so you're trying to turn it kind of into a, a bond, and then adjust, like what is then implied based on if you treated that as a bond. Yes, yes, yeah, that's a great way to look at it, uh, and and it's a it's it's. It's a net of all liabilities too. So you 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 take it to the bond, then you add whatever other claims might be senior to uh, an investor claim. So that would be deferred taxes and deferred compensation and option liabilities and pensions, and and you know debt in general. And that often really knocks the economic book value down pretty low. And you'll see some big multiples, and that's just a, just another way of of measuring risk. You know, how much do profit, if profits are here today, the stock price implies they're going to be, you know, here, you know, that that's more risk than profits are here today. And the stock market, stock price actually implies profits are going to be a little bit lower. You know, the stocks that make our long idealist tend to be stocks that imply, imply permanent price decline. That's just low risk. You know, one of the regional banks we like is Zion Bank. Uh, doesn't have a lot of commercial real estate exposure. But it's trading as if its profits will permanently decline by sixty percent. You know, we were long Nvidia years ago, when its price to economic book value was zero point four, uh, and its profits, its price, its stock price was implying its profits were going to also fall by sixty percent. We're like, oh, that's cheap. It's a really profitable business. This looks like really good risk reward. Now, unfortunately, we closed the position long before it went, you know, parabolic, but. We were right on the front end. It just got kind of expensive. Um, value investors lament. That's right. Exactly. I bought it until it got the fair value, and then it had its run. That's right. That's right. But it's a it's a good it's a good way to look at things to buy. So I agree. Uh, we're coming up on the uh, on on full time, David. If folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? www.newconstructs.com or at new constructs on Twitter, uh, but definitely, yeah, uh, best best way to keep in touch with us or to follow is, is just check out the website. We've got a lot of really low priced products that we've added recently, where we're selling off individual company reports, 
model portfolio access um, and and um, model portfolios for stocks and funds. So we do ETFs and mutual funds. Model portfolios, those are some of those are as cheap as nine or ten bucks a month. And then for institutional clients, you know, if you want access to the data and the models and things like that, you're looking at a thousand bucks a month or four thousand bucks a month on average. Uh, but that basically, you know, one 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 seat at four thousand bucks a month is worth probably maybe twenty five analysts or more. Yeah, so, I use it. That's how I use it too. It's better than having an analyst. It's an analyst who doesn't make any mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and you're covering a lot more companies. Yeah, and you get ETFs and mutual funds, and you get macro research and individual company research. Yeah, no, I think it's it's easily worth. 25 is probably a pretty steep understatement, honestly. It's probably worth a team of 100 analysts. And that doesn't even count the technology you got to build to harness all the work that those analysts would do. But yeah, we, we, um, yeah, we're not making the same mistakes as humans. That's part of the reason why we got machines to do the work. Machines are very obedient. <laughs> and they don't have healthcare costs that keep rising. Yes. They don't complain. David Trainer.